Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, with the message, The Wine Press. Well, in last week's message, um, you know, if you were here, that John had a vision of three angels. And so those three angels are going to have a very important role right before the Lord comes back on the clouds of heaven. If you're taking notes by way of review, God is going to send angels to proclaim his truth during the great tribulation period. And so while the Antichrist, the false prophet, are deceiving the nations, while all these cataclysmic events are rocking the planet, while millions of people are searching for answers, literal angels are going to fly across the sky proclaiming truth to those who are alive during the last three and a half years. And so what will be the messages of the three angels? The first angel, if you remember, is going to proclaim the eternal gospel, and the gospel has never changed. It's always the same. The second angel, well, he's going to proclaim something a little different. He's going to say, Babylon has fallen, and I'll explain that when we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18. The third angel is going to come, and he's got a very sobering message. That's how we ended last week. You remember how heavy it was, but it's because that's where we are in the Bible, and so his message is going to be a message, a warning, a proclamation about eternal judgment for those who reject Christ. And so the messages of those three angels are going to be the Lord's last call to try to wake people up because the hour is so late. And by the way, how gracious is our God to give a last call? How gracious is our God to send literal angels at that late hour to proclaim his truth? I say it almost every week because I want you guys to understand the heart of God. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his heart. The problem is his heart doesn't match up with man's heart. And so at that late hour, most people, sadly, they're going to reject the, the, the proclamation of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the proclamation of the two witnesses, the proclamation of these three angels, and they're going to do two horrible things. They're going to take the mark of the beast, either in their right hand or their forehead, and they are going to worship the image of the beast. Now, somebody might say, well, how in the world can somebody be so dumb as to take the mark of the beast in their right hand or forehead? Well, remember that if you don't take the mark of the beast, you don't eat. The only way that they're able to buy and sell, Revelation chapter 13 says, is if they take this mark in their right hand or in their forehead. Somebody says, well, how in the world can be somebody be so dumb as to get down on their hands and knees before a global politician? Well, number one, they did it throughout the Roman Empire as people worshiped the different Caesars that sat on the throne. But also, if you don't worship the Antichrist at that time, his government will execute you. And so billions, with a B, of people are going to succumb to the global government, the Antichrist government, and they're going to take the easy way out. That's the bad news. The good news is that millions of people are going to turn to Christ during the tribulation period. And they're going to engage in what is known as civil disobedience, and that is going to take great strength and great endurance. And that's why it says in verse 12, so if you're looking at verse 12, just say amen. So here we go. Please follow along. Here is a call for the endurance. Some of your translations say perseverance. Of the saints. And by the way, who's a saint? How can you tell if somebody's a saint? It's those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the tribulation saints will be encouraged to remain faithful to Christ through tough times, even to the point of death. Now, once again, what's the context of verse 12? The context is the great tribulation. The context is that most people are taking the easy way out. 
They're taking the mark of the beast. They're worshiping his image. But the tribulation saints, well, they're gonna know heaven's gonna call them to endure, to persevere, no matter how hard things get. And by the way, things will become very hard for them. You see, the fact that they're saying no to the Antichrist government means that they have to be on the run, that they have to live underground, that they're wondering where they're, where they're gonna get their next meal, that if they ever uh, engage in ministry, it's gonna be at the risk of their lives. These people are not gonna know who to trust, who not to trust. They're constantly, constantly gonna be looking over their, their shoulders, and at some point, the Antichrist government is gonna catch up to many of these people, literally millions of these people who are living underground, and they're gonna give these tribulation saints a choice. You either take the mark of the beast, you either worship this global dictator, or you will lose your head. And so, Revelation 7, 9 through 14, tells us that millions of people, a number that is so great it can't, can't even be counted, millions of people are gonna be martyred for their faith during the tribulation period. I have a question for you. The fact that millions of people are gonna die for their faith, is that such a bad thing? Well, that depends on your worldview. You see, if you have a secular, humanistic worldview, which is pumped out by most of our universities in America, if you have a secularistic, humanistic worldview, then death is a terrible thing because you think this life is all there is. But if you have a biblical worldview, then you understand that, that death is not a terrible thing. Actually, death is a blessing because there's more to life than this life. How, how many of you guys understand that the best is yet to come, right? I've been going through my devotion slowly through the Gospel of Mark, me and Warren Wiersbe and the Transformation Bible, and, and we're just inching through, and I can't believe how many times Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He keeps pointing people toward the next world, the next life. Why? Because Jesus knows that the best is yet to come, and that's what verse 13 says, Check it out. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead. By the way, we're the only ones that have this message in the whole earth. Blessed, happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Holy Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their, for their deeds Follow them. And so those who die in the Lord will be blessed. Blessed in at least two ways. Number one, they're gonna receive blessed rest from their exhausting work. And then number two, they're gonna receive blessed rewards for their faithful service. And so in verse 13, it talks about how they're gonna rest from their labors. That word labor in the original language literally means Difficult, exhausting work, okay? And so for the tribulation saints, man, their, their ministerial work, their work of ministry, it's gonna be exhausting, it's gonna be difficult. Why? Because they're gonna be running from the government while they're ministering on the run. They're gonna be living underground. They're gonna be wondering where their next meal comes from. They're gonna be engaging in ministry at the, the risk of their, of their lives. And many of them, again, are gonna be caught and then they're gonna be killed. But, good news, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, some of you guys need to write that down. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, and I quote, to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. By the way, that's a great verse for some of your Seventh-day Adventist friends who believe that when you die, your soul sleeps for many years until the final resurrection. No, when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say to the repentant thief? He said, today, everybody say today. today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body means to be present 
with the Lord. And so at the moment that the, the Antichrist government's blade comes down on the back of the neck of, of these tribulation saints, at that moment, they're going to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. And according to Revelation chapter 7, they'll be clothed in white robes. And, and all their exhausting work will be fading away as God wipes away every tear from their eyes. Not only that, they're blessed in a second way because they're, they're, they're going to receive blessed rewards for their faithful service. It says at the end of verse 13, check it out, quote, their deeds will follow them. Okay, and so the eternal gospel, as I said earlier, is the same gospel that it's always been. We're saved by, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I can't emphasize that enough. If you live in the Old Testament, you're looking forward to the Messiah. If you're living in the New Testament times like us, you're looking back to the Messiah. And salvation has always been through the Messiah. His name is Jesus. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so when these tribulation saints lose their heads by the millions, what's going to happen is that they're going to end up in heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but they're also going to receive blessed rewards for their faithful service. And it's the same thing with all faithful believers in any age, any generation. You see, um, right now we live in what theolo uh, theologians call the age of grace. The church age, it lasts from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. And so here we are, we're in the church age, and we're reminded that Jesus uh, said this. He made this promise. He said, quote, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, whose church is it? Please, everybody say Jesus' church. Okay, it's his church. Church was his idea, not man's idea. He said, I will build my church. I had to remind myself of that whenever I start to worry and to fret about this church. It's like God will say, it's not your church. <laughs> Let me worry about my church. You just be faithful in what I called you to do. Okay, and so for those of you who are faithful and you're involved in Jesus church, and we're just one of millions around the world, Christ-honoring, Bible-teaching churches. But if you're here today and you take seriously the bride of Christ, which is the church, if you've decided to take your faith to the next level and you're not satisfied with just coming in once or twice a month and sitting in a pew, but you're making a big deal about his church, and, and, and what are you doing? You're connecting not just on Sunday morning, but you're connecting in a smaller group during the week. Why? Uh, to help people, to encourage people, to pray for people, to minister to people, to make some friends. You're connecting, and not only that, but you're, you're looking around, you see all these ministry teams, and so you've, you've decided, I'm gonna make an investment, I'm gonna start to serve in Christ's church. Maybe I'll be a greeter, maybe I'll be an usher, Maybe I'll work on the creative arts team. Maybe I'll be a part of the security team or the safety team or the refreshment team or the children's ministry, a shine ministry team, or, or I'm gonna help Pat during the week in, in office administration, or I'm gonna uh, be here every Wednesday night. I'm gonna be praying for this church because I believe in this church. I'm gonna serve the church. I'm gonna adopt the street, and I'm gonna start cleaning up our church, cleaning up a street in Port St. Lucie because we love our community. I'm going to figure out a way to not just sit in the pew, but I'm going to serve. I'm going to connect. I'm going to serve, and I'm going to grow. That means in my own personal walk, I'm not going to blow the dust off this book once a week and open it up. I'm going to open this book up every single day of my life, and maybe even day and night and I'm gonna meditate in the word day and night, and me and Jesus are gonna become best friends through prayer and through worship. I'm gonna connect, I'm going to serve, I'm going to grow, and I'm gonna invite people. I believe so much in Jesus' church, I'm gonna take that invite card that's on my seat every other week, and I'm gonna invite neighbors and friends and coworkers to come and hear the gospel, and I'm gonna invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm gonna connect, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna grow, I'm gonna invite, 
and I'm going to believe so much in Christ Church, I'm actually going to open my wallet or my purse, and I'm going to begin to invest financially in the work of God. Those of you who are doing that, what you need to understand is one day you will stand in heaven, and you'll be there for one reason only, the blood of Jesus. You will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you got to understand that at the same moment, the Lord is going to richly bless you for your faithful service to him on this earth. The judgment seat of Christ is coming, ladies and gentlemen. And all Christians will be there. And our works are going to go through the fire. And depending on our service to the Lord in his church, and through his church, it's his idea. As long as those works were done with the right motives, it will come forth, our works will come forth as gold, gold, silver, precious stones. But hey, if we're sitting in the pew once or twice a week and we're not getting involved in the little bit of service that we do, that we, that we actually perform is with the wrong motives, you need to know that's wood, that's hay, that's stubble, and it will burn up publicly in front of everybody. And I want to let you know that I don't want you to come to me on that day and say, Pastor Mike, I didn't know, with tears in your eyes. You say, well, am I gonna make it into heaven? Yeah, by the blood of Jesus, you'll make it into heaven. But do you know how you're gonna feel when your wood, hay, and stubble burns up at the judgment seat of Christ? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time, whether it's this church or another good local church in the area, for some of you to take your faith to the next level and begin to connect and serve and grow and invite and give. And when you get there and you see him face to face, you'll be so glad that you did. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. And so the angels' calls have gone out. The earth has been warned. The end of time has come. We see now the second coming of Jesus Christ right here in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. It's a preview of what's going to happen in Revelation 19. And so check it out. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. That's the Lord's favorite title for himself. With a golden crown on his head, the victor's crown, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And, say, and so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so when Jesus comes, he's going to use his sharp sickle to harvest a world that is overdue, overripe for judgment. When the Lord comes, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's wearing a victor's crown on his head, and he's holding a sharp sickle in his hand. Some of, some of you may think, what's a sickle? A sickle is a, a, a long, curved, razor-sharp blade um, attached to a wooden handle. Farmers would use the sickle uh, during harvest time to cut down their stalks of wheat with the sickle. And so what's going to happen is that an angel is going to say to the Lord as, he, as he's coming back, verse 15, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is, very important, fully ripe. Now, that's an interesting word. In the original language, ripe means, quote, withered and dried up. And so I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a wheat field that's overripe. That's the sense here. That's the, 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 the wheat is, 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 is withered. It's dried up. It's rotten. Imagine a, a whole wheat field that, that stinks because it's rotten. What's a farmer going to do with his sickle to that harvest that's overripe? 
Here's what he's going to do. He's going to cut it down, and he's going to throw those stalks into the fire. And when the Son of Man one day comes back on the clouds of glory, he also is going to swing his sickle across the earth, and what is he going to do? He's going to cut down wicked people who hate him, and they will be thrown into the fire. Why? Because the world is rotten. You think the world is rotten now? Just wait till the end of the tribulation period. You say, I don't think the world's very rotten. Are you kidding me? Did you watch the news yesterday? Did you see what happened in Virginia? Do you see what man is at his core? Man is a racist. Man is rebelling against God. Man is egotistical, and he thinks because he has a certain color that he's better than anybody else. Our world is rotten, and our world will become more rotten when Jesus comes back, and so he'll have to take his sickle, and he'll have to cut them down, his enemies. Look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so after John has this vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he has another apocalyptic vision of two angels, and they're coming out of the temple of heaven. One has authority over the fire. The other one has a sharp sickle in his hand. The one who has authority over the fire, most scholars believe it's the fire of the altar of incense in the, the temple in heaven. And by the way, altar of incense, by way of review, the smoke that ascends up represents our prayers. And so the angel with authority over the fire, probably in answer to God's people's prayers, what does he do? He comes from that altar in heaven and he shouts over to the other angel that has the sharp sickle. And he says in verse 18, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes, its grapes are ripe. So in verse 16, we have a grain harvest. And now in verse 18, we have a grape harvest. Now look at verse 19. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and he gathered the grape harvest of the earth and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. What does that mean? That means, if you're taking notes, during the Battle of Armageddon, the enemies of God will be trampled upon and their blood will spatter five feet high for a distance of 184 miles. Now, maybe you're here today and you're visiting Calvary for the first time and you're thinking right now, Pastor Mike, why in the world are we all talking about blood spattering five feet high for 184 miles? Well, here's why. Because we're part of a global network of churches that teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and it happens to be the verse that we are on this Sunday. And so, welcome to Calvary. So glad you came today. All right? Now, what you gotta understand is that this prophecy in the New Testament is exactly the same as the prophecies in the Old Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to end times, you need to know the Bible is very consistent. It's consistent, by the way, in all of its messages, but the, the message of the Old Testament concerning the end of the world and the message of the New Testament concerning the end of the world are exactly the same. Let me illustrate. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah, God says through that prophet, I will gather, how many nations? All nations against Jerusalem, that's interesting, to battle. And then the Lord will go out and fight 
against those nations. By the way, did you notice there's a difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ? You see, we all love the first coming because Jesus comes meek and mild, little baby, helpless baby. But now, he's not coming back as a helpless baby, he's coming back as a warrior to go out and fight against all nations. All nations. All means all. I wonder where the United States of America will be at the end of days. You ever thought that? Now, I personally believe that the United States is nowhere in the Bible. It's just not mentioned at all. It's just not there. Some people try to say, well, these verses may, and this is not enough conclusive evidence to say that America is in the Bible. But, but here's what I know, that as we continue, as time continues towards the, the tribulation period, what we see in our world is that the world more and more is turning away from individual natural um, nationalistic patri patriotism to a global mindset. Have you noticed that, by the way? By the way, fly the American flag proudly because <laughs> we ought to thank God that we're Americans and we live in the greatest country in the world. We're free. Not perfect, but we're free. But you know what I just said? That offends some people. You know why it offends some people? because they're in, over here in this global mindset. Well, guess what's gonna happen in the end of days? There'll be a global government, a revived Roman Empire, and there's gonna end up being one dictator ruling over the entire world. And so individual nat nationalistic patriotism is gonna go out the window. Where will the United States of America be? I, I don't know, the Bible, where the Bible is silent, I will also be silent. And so Zechariah says, God says to Zechariah, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now, some people say, well, why Jerusalem, right? Why not Rome? Why, why won't God gather all nations against Rome or against Alexandria or against Cairo or against Carthage or, for that matter, against New York City or London or Paris? Why Jerusalem, here's why, if you're listening, say amen. Because man, fallen man, is intrinsically anti-Semitic. That's why. Man's fallen nature, within there, down there, somewhere, anti-Semitic. Ever since God made a promise, way back in Genesis chapter 12, to a man named Abraham. Abraham, by the way, a worshiper of many gods, polytheism, and the one true sovereign God, Yahweh, comes by grace alone. Not because of anything Abraham ever said or did. God comes and he reveals himself to Abraham. And now all of a sudden Abraham turns from his polytheism to embrace monotheism. He puts his faith in the one true God. And ever since that happened back in Genesis chapter 12, ever since God revealed himself to Abraham, and said, Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants into a great nation. Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants uh, not only into a great nation, but also I'm gonna give them a great land. By the way, what's on the news every single day, even in 2017? Disputes about the land. I'm gonna make your, your, your descendants a great nation, I'm gonna give them a great land, and I'm gonna be a great God. Ever since God promised to Abraham, Abraham, through your lineage, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Abraham, Messiah is coming through your family line. Ever since God confirmed that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac and then Abraham's grandson Jacob, and by the way, later on his name Jacob was changed to what? Israel. Ever since God made a promise that Israel will be my special people, ever since that happened, Satan has turned his big guns against Israel. So we see anti-Semitism throughout history. We see it through world empires, the Egyptian empire. Later in history, the Assyrian empire. Later on, the Babylonian empire. Then the Medo-Persian empire. Then the Greek empire. Then the Roman empire. All of them intrinsically anti-Semitic, persecuting the people of God. Not just through empires, but through evil individuals like a guy named Balak 
from Moab who hired a religious charlatan named Balaam to curse Israel. Why? Because Balak was anti-Semitic. Not only that, you continue to go out through history and now you find a guy named Haman of the Persian Empire. What does he want to see happen? What does he order? All Jews throughout the Medo-Persian Empire are to be exterminated. You continue to go forward in history to the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew and now the Greeks they're the world power of the day, and you have the Seleucid Empire, and you got a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, and what does he do? He overruns Jerusalem. He goes into the Jewish temple. He sets up an altar of Zeus, and he kills a pig in God's temple. Why? Because he's one of the biggest anti-Semites that ever lived. You continue to go on into history, and you come to a man named Adolf Hitler. And we all know, I hope we all know, I hope parents you are telling your children, we all know about World War II and the Holocaust that took place that killed six million Jews. Why? Because they committed the crime of being Jewish. What's sad to me is that what happened just 72 years ago, the Holocaust, has not taught the world anything. We haven't learned our lesson, why? Because anti-Semitism today continues to spread around the world. Radical Muslims today believe Israel is the quote-unquote little Satan, and they need to be wiped off the face of the map. And by the way, before you take too much comfort, um, they consider you and I the big Satan. And so anti-Semitism continues to spread Yes, throughout the Middle East, but also throughout the whole world, it will continue to spread even to the end of days when all nations will gather against Jerusalem. And then what's gonna happen? God says this through Joel. Let the nations stir themselves up and come. God's like, had it up to here. Come on, bring it on. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. The valley of Jehoshaphat, just about an hour and a half ride um, uh, north of Jerusalem, also known as the valley of Jezreel, also known as the valley of Megiddo, also known as the place of Armageddon. I've been there three times. We're going back in May of 2019, if you, 2018, no, 19, May of 2019, if you wanna go with us. But there, Jack uh, Worrell and I are standing on Mount Carmel, and right behind us is the Valley of Megiddo. Huge, massive, fertile plain. Extends from Mount Carmel in the west, that's where we are, all the way to the Jordan River in the east. And, and by the way, it's amazing to me that it has not been built upon. It's just there, it's massive to this day. Napoleon once stood there. Napoleon says about the, Mount, the Valley of Megiddo, quote, if there ever was a place where the last war must be fought, it is here. For 3,500 years, from 1468 BC, when the Egyptians fought there, all the way to 1917, when the British fought there, over 200 battles have taken place in the Valley of Megiddo. That is where the Bible says, and the Bible has never been wrong. By the way, how many of you guys understand that God always bats a thousand? Everything he says comes true. And so all the armies of the nations will gather there in that valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. And then God continues to say through his prophet Joel, put in the what? Sound familiar? Old Testament, New Testament, same message. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so once again, what God says in the Old Testament, he reiterates through John, in the New Testament, look at the end of verse 18 of Revelation 14. One angel says to another, put in your sickle 
and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and he gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The great winepress of the wrath of God. You ever go to Israel with us? Uh, one of the places that we go is the garden tomb right outside the old city gates of Jerusalem. Many evangelicals believe that's the garden where Jesus was buried. We're not sure, but we know that um, archaeologists dug down and they found an ancient wine press. And so ancient wine presses in Israel had an upper vat and a lower vat. And so what farmers would do is they would take their sickle and they would cut down the clusters of grapes and they would throw those grapes into the upper vat. And then they would take off their sandals and they'd all jump in and they would trample on those grapes and the juice would spatter and the juice would flow down through a narrow channel down into the lower vat. And then of course they would come with wine, uh, um, wine skins and they would uh, take that grape juice and give it some time to ferment and then they would serve that wine at the meal. In the same way, at the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo will become the great wine press of the wrath of God. And at that time, an angel, and now of course the Bible is speaking allegorically, but hey, behind every allegory, there's a literal truth. And an angel is gonna take his sickle and he's gonna thrust it into the Valley of Megiddo. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna cut down thousands, maybe millions of soldiers, cut them down like grapes. And then he's gonna take those soldiers and he's gonna throw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And at that point, the Lord himself is gonna jump in and he's going to trample on his enemies. And the Bible says that their blood will spatter. Look real quick, just take a quick right to Revelation 19, 13. This is the other vision of the second coming of Christ. Starting in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and what's the next two words, the end of verse 11? Second coming, very different than the first coming. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a, here it is, a robe dipped in what? In blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Same message in the New Testament is the message in the Old Testament. Check out on the screen what God says through Isaiah, the prophet. Now we're going 700 years before Christ. Speaking about the end times, someone asked the Lord, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And the Lord answers and says, I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I don't know if you knew this, but you probably have sung about this. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth, come what may, his truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. You see the battle hymn of the Republic based upon Revelation chapter 14, the very verses that we're studying this afternoon. And so now in verse 20, it says that the wine press was trodden outside the city, that's the Valley of Megiddo, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, so as high as the horse's bridle, that's about five feet. So the blood spattering up to five feet. And for 1,600 stadia, stadia, a unit of measurement, when you do the math, that's 184 miles. And so the Valley of Megiddo, not just the Valley of Megiddo, but according to those measurements, outside the battle will continue, the blood 
will spatter. It will be an absolute bloodbath when the Lord comes back. So many people are gonna perish, but here's the real tragedy. They're not just gonna perish physically, the real tragedy, they will perish spiritually. Great white throne judgment, which we'll see when we get to Revelation chapter 22. But, but here's the thing, they have no excuse. Here's what I want you to hear today. They heard the message of the 144,000. They heard the message of the two witnesses. They heard the message of the three angels. But they ignored the word of God to their own destruction. They rejected the gospel. What is the gospel? If you're with me right now, can you say amen? Please listen so, so closely. What is the gospel? Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel has been the same throughout all ages. Here's the gospel. I'll start with the bad news and we'll end with what gospel means, good news. The bad news is that all of us were born sinners. Thank you, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, no matter what you heard in your university, were two literal people. And they sinned deliberately against God. The Catholics call it original sin. We call it a sin nature. It's based upon what Paul said in Romans. As by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Every single one of us were born sinners. Even the little babies. You say, oh, Pastor Mike, they're so precious. They're so beautiful. How can you say that they have a sin nature? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go start volunteering in our nursery every week. <laughs> and then theological truth will come bursting upon your mind. As you see that they're sinners over there. <laughs> all of us, please say all. All of us were born in sin. And not only that, but all of us choose to sin. And so I'm gonna ask this question. I want you to be very, very honest. How many of you can honestly say, yes, I have chosen to sin in my life. I'll raise two hands. Let me see how many hands go up. I have chosen to sin in my life. I'm gonna wait and see if anyone's hand's not up. Yeah, everybody, all. All of us were born in sin. All of us have chosen to sin. And the Bible says the penalty of sin is death. Death. Now, we're not just physical beings. We're physical and spiritual. We're material and immaterial. We're body and soul. And so death does not just mean you're, they bury you six feet under or you're cremated. Death is also talking about spiritual death, which means that your soul is immortal and it will live in one of two places forever, heaven or hell. Now, if you die in your sins, you're gonna wake up in a place you don't wanna be. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God loves you. He's crazy about you. And God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Here's the gospel. Jesus, the eternal son of God, left his throne in heaven and entered time and space through a virgin's womb, first coming of Christ. And he was 100% God, 100% man. He lived an absolutely perfect life. If he was sitting here and I said, how many of you guys have sinned? He would keep his hands down, honestly. Never told a lie, never even had a bad thought. He was God in the flesh. He lived perfectly, so he's the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. That's what's required for a sin offering. And what did he do at the end of his life? He willingly went to a Roman cross and he was nailed half naked publicly. And while he was on that cross, the Bible says that he took your sins and my sins and the sins of the world 
into his body on the tree and he paid for our sins. How? By dying. Why? Because the penalty of sin is, did he die for his sins? He died for your sins and mine. And three days later, he got up victoriously by the power of the Holy Spirit and walked out of that grave, authenticating everything that he ever said or did. And now he calls a lost world of sinners that he loves to come and receive the forgiveness that he freely offers. That's the gospel. And so maybe you're here today and you thought it was something else. You thought, man, I hope I'll get there someday. Maybe, I'm trying. You need Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. You'll never get there on your own. You need to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've never done that. You need to respond. Listen, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Or maybe you're here today and you've given your life to Christ, but right now you're like that prodigal, you're living in a faraway country. Your life is not representing the Lord. Here's what you need to know. As I say so often, God is not like doing this to you. He's that father, he's standing on the hill, he's looking with his arms open, won't you come home? (laughs) And so if you're here today and you need to respond to Christ for the first time, or maybe you need to come back to him, we're just gonna be very, very clear and simple today. I'm just gonna ask you to stand to your feet right now, and we're gonna get right with God. Just stand to your feet wherever you are right now and remain standing. God bless you. And God bless you. And God bless you. Awesome. Anybody else? Just stand and remain standing. Church, just really encourage these people. It takes a lot of guts to do this. Thank you for, thank you for remaining standing here. But, but here's what I know. What I know is there's more people There's more people right now, and I wanna say that verse from Hebrews again. Today, if you hear his voice, if there's a tugging, don't harden your hearts. He loves you. Won't you respond to his love? Stop living the way you're living. Stop living in that faraway country. Come back, come home. Receive the forgiveness that only he can offer. And so it's the last call but I wanna make sure you have an opportunity, so just stand to your feet, whoever you are, respond to the Father. It's not about me, it's about his spirit right now speaking to you. Just respond to that, and we'll take care of that. God bless you. Awesome. Yep, awesome, good job, man. I love it. Where's the, you know we need some more men? You know what we need? we need some more, and thank God for women when they respond. Praise God for that. But what we need is some, some more men who will say, I, I, I'm tired of being a follower. I'm gonna be the leader of my family, the spiritual leader of my family, the spiritual leader of my marriage, and I'm gonna start leading in the church as well. That's what we need in our, in our church, some men of God. Oh, God bless you guys. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And so those of you who are standing, um, I don't know if you're coming back to the Lord, I don't know if you're coming to him for the first time, but I do wanna lead you in a prayer. And so you've heard the gospel, you heard it clearly, it's all because of what Jesus did, not what we do, but we have to come to him by faith, repentance and faith. And so in the prayer, you're not reciting a poem, you're talking from your heart to the heart of God. And what you're doing, just so you know what you're getting into, best way you know how, you're turning from your sin and you're embracing Jesus and what he did on the cross as your only hope, as your resurrected Savior and Lord. You're confessing him as the boss of your life. And so if you're still in, just bow your heads and from your heart say this to the Lord. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for my sins, going my own way and doing my own thing. But I thank you that you love me anyway. I believe that you died for me and paid for all my sins. So right now I open my heart and I ask you, Jesus, to come on in 
be my savior and be the Lord of my life. It's in your name that I pray. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here, then Knowing Christ.